2: Fish has performed their flagship anthem, You Enjoy Myself, almost 600 times. And yet, as any Pandora or fan imagined algorithm will tell you, no two are identical. And that's why we keep coming back for more. And more. And more. In fact, of Fish's nearly 2,000 documented live performances, I defy you to find a pair of twins. Each show is a snowflake, a fingerprint connecting the band with the show, the venue, and the date. So if you fire up the mainframe at the Gamehenge Time Laboratory and feed it a You Enjoy Myself, you'll end up with...
3: December 9, 1995, Nacrebiker Arena, Albany, New York. I'm sure there's
2: some fish geek out there right now programming an AI... To be able to do exactly that. That is, to not only be able to determine the song, but to be able to tell you that version's identity. And if not, there will be now after this. You're welcome. Identity is a very interesting word to use when talking about the Fish universe. Fish's fans fish heads, fish kids, fish fanboys, fish chicks, or whatever you want to call us, by large identify with the scene itself at large. That is, identifying as a fish fan is to acknowledge and allow for the likelihood of a few common traits, fair or unfair. It's who we are collectively, but it's not all of who we are individually. Being a fish fan is our common ground. We all love this band. But there's a 100% chance that you're not just a fish fan. You're something more, something unique. You're also a schoolteacher, a bank teller, a marine biologist, a businesswoman, an astronomer, a lamplighter, a first responder, a second-line player, a third wheel, an economist, a lawyer, a caretaker, a student, an introvert or an extrovert, an activist, a coder, an athlete, an Uber driver, a mother or a father a best friend, a storyteller, a prankster, a dog sitter, a lone wolf, a happy camper. Some of you might be none of these things, but all of you, all of you, are so much more than any one of them. Previously, in this season of Undermine, we detailed how some of you may have first heard of fish, or your first fish show, or a story from fish tour. We learned what happens inside the venue on show day leading up to the main event, and on the last episode, we went out to Shakedown Street to check out the scents and subtle sounds of Fish Lot. In this episode, we're going to look at what happens when the venue opens its gates and the fans start streaming in. There's a name for the moment that happens. Come on, come on, come on, come on, not It's called Doors, which is also the name of this episode. If you've seen fish live, then you have the same experience as all of us of waiting patiently, sometimes hours, and sometimes not so patiently, for your turn to have a security guard pat you down and search all of your belongings, and then the moment you've been waiting for. Hearing that satisfying as the ticket taker scans your ticket. In that moment, it's an even playing field. Everyone is waiting to get inside. This episode of Undermine mimics those moments, minus the pat-down and pre-show anxiety. But today, let's hear not only from people exactly like you, but from people not like you at all. Everyone in this episode has, at minimum, two things in common. Everyone here identifies as a fish fan, and any one of these voices we hear from today could be the person dancing next to you at your next fish show. Perhaps even you've already shared dance space with them, made eye contact, joked with them in the beer line, or barked at them for talking too loudly in the row behind you during Ride, Captain, Ride. On the surface, we're a fairly homogenous fan base, but go even just one level deeper, and you'll find we are infinite, and we are indeed everywhere. Find us on the other side of this quick break. Fish formed on the campus of the University of Vermont in 1983. All four members of the band came from affluent families in the Northeast. As Trey Anastasio points out in the movie Bittersweet Motel, they grew up listening not only to the stuff their friends were turning them on to, or the stuff their parents exposed them to, but also the stuff they heard at the mall. It makes sense that their music would appeal first and foremost to people with similar influences, geographic backdrops, cultural touchpoints, and general backgrounds, since all of those references are embedded in the music. Cow Funk did not originate in, say, Latin America, and it's not necessarily big in Japan. Their specific sense of humor, musical throwbacks, and steady stream of cultural nods, winks, and references might not translate so easily to audiences abroad, or even to different demographics right here in their home country. But as the scene grew, so did the parameters of its demographics.
4: So I didn't have a specific fish shirt, I went to my first show with this guy from my college who had also never seen fish. But... I met this couple on the lawn that were just exceedingly kind. Like, they brought me waters. They made sure I made it to and from the bathroom at set break. They bummed me cigs. I don't even remember their names, but they made, like, a lasting impression. If you're out there and you and your spouse made friends with a 19-year-old Black girl at MPP in 2010, uh, get in touch. I'd love to reconnect and tell you how you kind of changed my
2: life. That's fish fan, Shawn A. Robinson, who is younger than the typical fish fan, and also not white.
4: So for the most part, the fish community has been pretty inclusive, although there have been some isolated incidents.
2: One of those incidents occurred at the Gorge in 2018 when two fans of color were attacked in what many suspect was a racially motivated incident. This reignited a conversation that was heralded in 2017 by Adam Liaz, an attorney and policy advocate for Demos, a prominent liberal think tank in D.C. Headcount published Adam's blog post titled, Fish Scene, So White, Let's Talk.
5: I did my best to get in touch with as many fans of color as I could to ask them about their experiences. And what I learned was that many folks were having Not the same experience as the typical white male fish fan like me. Um, I learned that folks were facing assumptions when they walked through the crowd about, for example, that maybe this was their first show or that someone else brought them. Many people uh, seem to be asked often about where the bathroom was at a venue because people assumed that they worked there instead of uh, they were actually a fan because of of their race. And I learned, by the way, also that many people had very positive experiences, right? So there was not sort of a, a monolithic unified experience, but there were certainly fans of color who were experiencing the kinds of racial and other dynamics that happen in outside society. you know We love to think that we can leave all that behind uh, when we come into these festivals and to our community. The reality is that my black friends who are fish fans don't shed their skin color when they walk through the turnstile.
6: My name is Arvind Gopal Retnam. Professionally, I'm the vice president of corporate social responsibility for the Milwaukee Bucks and the executive director of the Milwaukee Bucks Foundation. And personally, father of three, and I have a fish fan. Certainly not lost on me that I don't look like a lot of people that go to fish shows. It's something I guess I've I've become more aware of as I've gotten older, but has never been a barrier for me for my own connection to what I experience with the music and the band. When you grow up in, in, with with immigrant parents who are. Raising their, you know, first generation kids in this country, there's, is, it's, it's a little bit of a different experience. And, and you can go within different communities and cultures and ethnicities, and, and the upbringing is even different, right? So for for me, as a first member of the family born outside of India, raised with strong Hindu cultural beliefs within the family, I guess you know, really talking about bands and music wasn't something that comes up around the family dinner table, or something you talk about with relatives who are halfway around the world so it's not until you're really truly introduced embraced by your friends um growing up in this communities especially here in america and there's without question times that i have felt uncomfortable but those are few and far between um and it's never been a representation to me of what the fish community has been now that's my experiences that's that's what has allowed me to have this world be part of my world. And so it starts with welcoming arms that welcomed me into that world where the color of my skin never was a thought until it's brought up to you.
4: A lot of people assume that it's my first show or even weirder that I don't know what band is playing, which I don't know how I would stumble into an $80 concert and not know who's playing, but. You know, it happens quite frequently. Um, I've had people back out of a ticket trade after seeing me, like, well, you know, we'll meet on like PT or, you know, Reddit or something like that to exchange tickets or something like that. And they'll see me and then magically, oh, they don't need it anymore. People always assume that I'm the tag along for my fiance. Who has been to maybe five shows, all of which I brought him to. Like he's not a fish fan at all. But whenever I bring him, people just they start talking to him and completely ignore me. They think that I'm just like his girlfriend that he brought along. I've noticed like in the decade that I've been seeing fish, like I have never seen my white friends having these interactions. And then conversely, like my other black friends who are fish fans, they have similar stories.
2: When Adam published his article, there were divergent reactions from the fish community. Some fans felt that there was more that needed to be done to create an inclusive environment for everyone. Others were defensive and denied the assertion that the community was exclusive in any way.
5: I think it touched a nerve for a lot of folks. I think what the conversation that followed, to me, taught me a few things. This was a real issue in our community that had that folks weren't talking about. There are a lot of fans of color that don't feel comfortable coming to the shows. And it's not because the fish scene is any more racist than the rest of the country at all. Um, But whenever you have a scene or a community that is so clearly majority white, then you have to examine and think about the background around that and sort of how whiteness operates and works and how race operates and works in that kind of culture or scene. And we weren't doing that as a community. We weren't asking those questions. We weren't examining that. And so it really showed me that there was a conversation that needed to
2: happen. Adam realized something. The response to his article, in some ways, it fit the textbook definition of white fragility. We're taught
5: that Racists are bad people and good people aren't racist and so if you suggest to me that I may have done anything that could be racist or even had thoughts that could be conceived as racist Then that makes me a bad person and then I have to spend all my energy defending myself against that that accusation and the reality is that we are raised and acculturated in a society that has its roots in white supremacy. So we are all gonna carry around these kinds of assumptions and what's known as implicit biases. That's not an indictment on anyone's character. That is just an acceptance of reality. And so that's one. And another example is this idea of colorblindness where you know many of us are taught that the aspiration is to not see race. But the reality is is that as a white fan, if I tell a black fan that I don't see race, what I'm telling that person is that I'm not acknowledging that you may be having a different experience than I'm having in our community and in the broader world. Adam did the hard, I think, lifting. That, that is hard to do.
2: June Wong Kim, a postdoctoral candidate at Virginia Tech University, co-wrote an academic research article entitled The Culture of White Space, The Racialized Production of Meaning and the Jam Band Scene. Published in the Journal of Sociological Inquiry.
7: Like, I'm a fish fan. Like, before I'm a researcher. That's something that I want to really highlight. I love fish. I fucking love fish.
2: Yes. I think we can all say that, right? We love fish.
7: Okay. So, I specialize in race and racism, racial affect, racial ideology and language, particularly, and how culture... And cultural practices, in particular, my foray is into language. How does the language play out racially? And vice versa. These things are mutually constitutive, right? So our article with my co-authors it's called The Culture wise Space, the Racialized Production of Meaning and the Jam Band scene. And we looked at Adam's article, we looked at the response by the fish fans, and people got vitriolic, very toxic. Now, what I started to analyze, we systematically analyzed in these responses, right? We figured out a particular pattern. People would do these two things in the article, deflection and racial humor. Like they would make jokes, they would deflect. You know, it's not surprising. And it's what's even more funny is that they're doing the same thing that we found in the article, the racial humor, deflection. I I don't know if I'm using the particular terminologies within the article. You know, it's this notion of sarcasm, NIMBY, not in my backyard, right? that's there and then our our conclusive and our sort of theoretical model of how people do not in my backyard guard keep all that stuff that is encapsulated with uh, this idea of deflection uh, racial humor that is uh, sarcasm crude humor
2: Whether or not the Fish fan fanbase is racist is a question that would necessitate using broad strokes, the kind that perpetuates stereotypes, for an answer. And we're a fanbase that has unequivocally, if nothing else, been averse to stereotyping, even though we do it all the time ourselves. Are we racist? Probably not most of us, right? But let's start with this. The majority of us who are white have inherently benefited from the privilege that is ingrained in many cultural institutions. In order to address this inequality, some fish fans started a Facebook group called Fans for Racial Equity, Free for short.
3: So, Fans for Racial Equity Free was born out of an article that Adam Liaz wrote about the fish steam so white, and he got a lot of backlash for that.
2: That's Malcolm Howard, Free's co founder.
3: And I jumped on the bandwagon for sure. And there was a core four or five of us that said, hey, we can make a group out of this and we can bring, we can shed some light on it. And if we're going to take some heat, we'll take some heat. But eventually, as with all things, you know, people see the light.
2: Free became an official 501c3 organization during the Black Lives Matter protests in 2020. Free is dedicated to creating an anti-racist community that mobilizes fans to be a force for good in the scene and in the greater world. Fish chose them as the beneficiary for Dinner in a Movie number 35 this past June.
3: But I tend to think, just like coal turns into a diamond, with enough pressure from all sides, things will change. You know, I think not only do we need to call it out, people need to literally tell people, I don't think this is the place you should be with that behavior. I hate that we have to police that, but people do, like you just nailed it, people get fucked up. And they think that's my right because I can do whatever I want and say whatever I want. But meanwhile, the respect that the band showed you by putting on all these shows every year, the respect that the staff there is ushering you and making sure you're safe getting out because you're having this experience. And for you to then go out and say, I own this or, or push people or start a fight. Like you're fighting at a fish show for what? For what?
2: If fighting isn't something you're used to seeing at a fish show, you're not alone. In fact, one of the stereotypes of our scene is that we're generally a peaceful crowd. And statistically speaking, we tend to be, especially in relation to many other fan bases. But we're not all vibrating with love and light, and if we're going after diversity, then maybe we don't need to be. We don't all have to share the same beliefs or morality any more than we should all have to share the same religion. But are there questions we should be asking ourselves? Issues that we should be addressing? And are there ways we can make our scene a more inclusive, safe space? Anybody who wants to be at a fish show deserves to be at a fish show. That sounds great, but take a minute to think if you truly believe that, because that would mean not just fans from all over the world, but also fans from all over the map, culturally, philosophically, even politically. Take a second to chew on that. We'll be right back. Before this ad break, we talked with Malcolm Howard, who co-founded Fans for Racial Equity, as a ripple effect from an article that Adam Leoz wrote about racism and the fish scene. Adam detailed some of his thoughts for us. And so
5: we you know it means welcoming folks with a nod and a smile like you would any fan, but not making assumptions about whether this might be someone's first show or their 100th show. Not running up and exaggeratedly welcoming a black fan because they're uh, you know, you hardly ever see those folks, right? Folks don't want to be singled out and sort of exoticized because of their race at shows. So it's being intentional about that. Another important part is being ready and willing to intervene if and when you see, racist things happening on Fishlot in our community. We need to send a very strong message that racism is not okay. It's not what we do here in the fish community. And folks, especially white fans, have to be ready and willing to step up to send that message, especially when you hear something in the bathroom when there are no fans of color present. It's our responsibility as white fans to step up as well. So we need to focus on all of the kinds of fans in our community and think about the experiences that folks are having and making sure that we're intentional about building an anti-racist and inclusive community more broadly.
2: Let's hear again from Sean Robinson.
4: The best way that the FISH community could be more inclusive or maybe maybe the simplest is to treat people like human beings and not curiosities. I don't wanna be reminded every time uh, I meet someone new that I'm a black person at a FISH show. I'm very aware of that. (laughs) I I just want to be like, treat me how you would treat some random 35-year-old white guy that you run into, like, you know, yeah, sure. I want to talk about last night's show. I want to, you know, I have feelings about some random tweezer from the 90s. Like, you don't have to treat me like, huh, you are a black person and you're here. Let's explore that. Like, it's been done already.
2: The fish scene is a community, and the very definition of community is a large group of people with common interests, characteristics, or geographical location. Inside a show, we're all in this together. In some ways, it's impossible to truly be alone at fish, because even if you traveled solo, you can still dance and sing and yell, and do the meat stick dance in unison with 20,000 others, many of whom are like minded, many of whom you might end up having a lot more in common with than just your passion for fish, and many of whom you might not have anything else with in common whatsoever. But having established common ground, fish, you find that you can still fist bump or trade tour stories at set break, or even just exchange smiles with as you pass them in the concourse.
8: Hands down, (laughs) haha. I have become the best like hand dancer that you could imagine. My hands and my arms can just, oh my God. I am so great with moving just my arms and flailing and you should see my limb by limb dance. Ooh, it's hard to beat. Kind of like a robot meets a spaz. My name is Laura Keating. My first fish show was July 24th, 1999 at Alpine Valley. So I have this really weird rare disease where I got a virus um, and my immune system overreacted to it and so I started producing this antibody in my brain um, and it blocks the signal from my brain to my parasympathetic nervous system one minute I was healthy fine at work um, and then the next minute could no longer control my heart rate my body temperature my blood pressure my fight or flight and my digestive system everything is just paralyzed Uh, so, I immediately started having to get nutrition through um, a central line. Started in my arm, it was a PIC line, and that goes to your heart. Um, and I get all my nutrition through my heart bypassing my digestive system since it doesn't work. There wasn't
9: yet a group that focused on disability. I'm a fan with disabilities. It's not always apparent, uh, but I have in the past had experienced problems at shows, and I just wanted to connect with other people who had similar experiences. Additionally, I have academic expertise in in the field of disability studies, and, and I'm interested in the concept of universal design, which is an architectural principle that gets applied to other areas, focused on how we can kind of make the world more accessible.
2: Dr. Stephanie Jenkins is the director of the Mockingbird Foundation and a professor at Oregon State University. She started a group to bring together fish fans with disabilities.
9: So currently, Access Me is a Facebook group for fans with disabilities and allies. I started the group, but there are there's a collective of moderators who help run the group.
8: We usually go in earlier. Uh, maybe like a half hour before showtime because there's always some kind of hiccup with ADA tickets. I don't know. We either have to go somewhere and get special passes or what the tickets they don't match up with like the ADA section. There's always some kind of hiccup and it always works out, but we just like to get in and find our spot and know that we have a place to see the show because ADA, while there's like a section, it's first come first serve on where you sit there. So you need to get there early if you want to be close And that's where a lot of people like to come down and spin. And since I'm hooked up to like wires and IVs and stuff, I need a a place where nobody can kind of jack my medical equipment up. So, Um, and so it's just safer in ADA. And I know nobody's gonna come in and, you know, accidentally trip over a cord or run into a bee. Once I roll into the ADA, even if we don't know anybody, I'm pretty much automatically protected by this crew. (laughs) They all have their own medical stuff going on. So I think they're a little more empathetic and they're like "Ooh, yeah she needs to, we need to block her in because this could go south and i want everyone to have fun fish fans are so loving and friendly that there's so many times that they try to wheel me for pat and i end up like launched out of my wheelchair or taking out somebody's ankles and so yeah it's wild the after the after show is is intense It's amazing because I've had my, I've had serious mental health issues with depression and anxiety since I've gotten sick. I've had some really dark days. And to know that there's somebody out there like, like Trey who, he doesn't have to do this. You know, he he could sit back on his butt and put his feet up and do nothing for the rest of his life and not struggle financially or anything. And he's choosing to take his platform and change the world. You couldn't hope for anything
2: better. Elaine Vario, an usher at MSG, recalls meeting a father with disabilities at a fish show.
8: They brought their parents, and they were both in wheelchairs, but it was their first fish show. And the kids were respectful and lovely and beautiful people and we were putting glow sticks in their pockets when i went on break i came back with peanuts for the father and we had a few talks and he said he was having a good time i i you can't you don't see that in every concert you know what i mean you don't see the joy that the fish heads want to share with everyone else is a beautiful thing
2: When I introduced Dr. Jenkins as a director of the Mockingbird Foundation and the founder of Access Me, I should have said, that's not all she is. Dr. Jenkins is also an assistant professor of philosophy at Oregon State University. But again, that's not all she is.
9: So the class that I teach is philosophy of art and music, It's a standard class that goes through canonical theories about music ontology, ethics, uh, the concept of the sublime, and so forth. But studying academic philosophy, the ideas that we work through are really abstract and dense. And so for undergraduates, it can often be difficult to connect to the material, to understand why it's relevant, or even to just get a grasp on what's going on. So when you give students something like FISH a shared, concrete experience... It helps them apply the ideas that they're learning and understand why they're significant in ways that they might not be able to otherwise. So we study some philosophical readings along along those lines, and then it's paired with a Fishman vacuum solo performance. And then they debate about whether or not it counts as music. And one of the things that happens is that, right, they, they don't like it initially so the, the kind of the gut response is this couldn't possibly be music but once they go back through the readings and kind of work through their arguments almost all of the students come back and say yes like this not only is this music this is a kind of performance art. We study aesthetics, kind of philosophy that looks at what makes music good or bad. a uh, unit, I give them some uh, divided sky and a big black furry creature from Mars performance and ask them to explain which one they think is beautiful. So a standard part of the class is that students attend three concerts over the course of the academic term. And then there are assignments that are organized around helping them unpack their experience and applying it to the concepts that we're learning. Uh, Most years that I've taught the class, it's just been an online course. In 2018, I actually took students on a field trip to the Gorge Amphitheater. (laughs) We spent a weekend there, the students camped together. And I organized a mini academic conference on the campgrounds so that students could hear from other fish academics who were at the the concerts. Once I realized how cool the event was, I opened it up to fans and we had about a hundred fans who came and participated in the conversations.
2: So any of you who cut class to go catch the fish concert were doing it wrong. If you took Dr. Jenkins' class, you'd have gotten credit for attending and perhaps even extra credit for clapping at the right moments during stash or yelling hood. After all, at a fish concert, inclusion in the participatory elements is part of the culture.
9: So, one of the things that I did on the field trip was that I paired them with specific assignments that got them out into the community so that they didn't just stick to themselves. Right? So, they met pe- people um, and other academics at the mini conference. Uh, I also gave them kind of an interview assignment where they had to go find a fan who had been to right, more than 50 shows and ask some questions. They had to find someone to teach them the meat stick. And as a result of that, right, it was a really interactive experience and they learned much more than they would have if they had only been exposed to me.
2: Dr. Jenkins curated the first Fish Studies Conference, which was held on her campus at Oregon State University in 2019.
10: I saw uh, online that there was the Fish Studies Conference that took place last May at Oregon State University. And since I teach here and research is uh, an important part of being a professor, I knew that there was no way I could let this opportunity to potentially present or be a part of that a fish Studies conference, go, I couldn't let it go without uh, trying to at least submit something and seeing if it got accepted.
2: Joel Gershon is an adjunct professor of communications at American University.
10: I was walking out on New Year's and right in front of the MSG I saw two people having an American Sign Language conversation. So it kind of just hit me as soon as I saw it. I was like, whoa, that's pretty interesting. Uh, Maybe I should introduce myself. Maybe that could be a topic. So I did. I went up to them, introduced myself, got their information learned as much as I could. And then kind of step by step, person by person organically, I got to know a bunch of people uh, who are deaf or hard of hearing as well as interpreters, put in a, uh, an abstract to the fish studies conference, got accepted and then I really dove in over the next several months to learn everything I could about what it's kind of like to be uh, a deaf person and a fish fan and the issues that kind of come up.
7: This is Aaron speaking. I'm from Seattle, Washington, and I am consider myself hard of hearing. So what that means, uh, I have a lot of hearing. I have a lot of access to sound. I do wear hearing aids, and I go to a lot of shows. I go to a lot of Dead Company, any Grateful Dead-related shows, and I'm really blessed to have the amplification that I have the access to my hearing through hearing aids. I do feel the music in addition to not only what I can hear, but through the vibration, the rhythm, and the, the beat the sounds that I feel through the arena, so.
11: I went to a mainstream school for elementary through high school, and I was one of the only deaf people in a hearing classroom. I do remember my first experience with music probably was with Pearl Jam, one of my old favorite bands. And when it comes to calling a person deaf or hard of hearing, it depends on the person's cultural sensitivity to the culture itself. For example, I call myself deaf, but other people could, could call themselves hard of hearing or whatever they prefer because of, of the cultural context. But it's important to keep in mind that when a hearing person approaches a deaf person, they have to make sure they call them the appropriate name. You, you can say deaf or hard of hearing, but the word hearing impaired is not used anymore.
3: Some of you guys know there's this song called Sleeping Monkey. It refers to something else. During the lyrics, the interpreters that we had, one of them was kind of cringing when she was interpreting the song. That just kind of made it like, don't do that. You're supposed to just interpret, not show your facial expression disgust. It was just a little uh, off. But other than that, it was a great show, but it was just, you know, some of the songs, they really didn't agree with the lyrics, and it was just kind of like, uh, don't do that.
11: It depends on the individual, but for me, I wear hearing aids and a cochlear implant, so. I can hear most specific, more specific levels of music, but I, I'm never able to understand the lyrics 100%, so I have to train myself to learn the lyrics you know, myself and to identify the song if I look on Twitter, um, and then I can see what song it is. So when I hear the music, it's real and I can feel it. It's like when, play, when Paige plays and he does the famous synth thing, I can feel it and I can hear it. But with deaf people in general, I think that we feel more a little bit more sensitive to the sounds than we actually are hearing and trying to understand. So when we see them live, it feels like it's, it's real. It's where we're close to the speakers. We, you know, we can see how they're reacting, you know, to what we are feeling or listening to, as opposed to if I'm listening on a CD, I, I can feel it somewhat, but it's not loud enough to, you know, in, like it is in the arena.
2: If you haven't figured it out, those were Mike's words, but they were spoken through an interpreter. When you see an interpreter signing Fish's lyrics at a show, it's not just for show, it's for our deaf or hard of hearing friends in the audience. They're a part of our community too, and their show experiences can be both profound and therapeutic, as well as just a good time, like all of us. Talking of a good time, now would be a good time for a bathroom break. Because we're getting close to showtime, I'll hold down the seats. Hurry on back. Hey, welcome back. Perfect timing. Looks like we're 15 minutes past ticket time. The band should be on soon. Before the lights drop, here's Adam Liaz again. Adam works for a progressive think tank and has some great thoughts about our scene, beyond the race issues that he wrote about.
5: The beautiful thing about the fish community is that we have our own values that many of us try to take back into the outside world when we leave a festival. That sense of collectivity, that sense of... We're all in this together, and we assume good things about each other. Uh, that sense that you can go up and start a conversation. Uh, my name is Rob Corwin. I'm one of the
12: founders of Brian Robert. I've been listening to Fish for a long time. I think my first show was
2: Hampton '96. Brian and Robert is a group for LGBTQ plus Fish fans to meet up before and after shows. And so I meet this guy Danny
12: at this meeting. He, you know, I tell him, Hey, if you can get tickets to Hampton, you can catch a ride with us. Interestingly he he had never dated a guy and actually wasn't out to anyone but himself at that point. So I made the offer and little did I know, you know, I didn't realise Danny was sort of well connected in the fish community and I think, you know a day later, he called me up and had had tickets to the show, which I think was hard sold out at that point. I think Andy Gadiel had hooked him up with some sort of arrangement. He was supposed to crash with the Disco Biscuits at their hotel. Uh, I mean, he was going to catch a ride down there with us, and so we you know, we piled in the car, we drove down to Hampton. Generally, yeah. I think generally, I'd say, you know, in the aggregate, I mean, the fish community has always felt very welcoming. I mean, which is not surprising, right? Very welcoming of a bunch of divergent non-mainstream ways of being in all kinds of senses. I can definitely throughout think of some, you know, some comments or some, just some energies that felt weird. Cuddling on each other in the middle of that all night show, but some of the looks I could feel was like, oh, shucks, those guys are holding hands. And some of them were like, what's going on over there? there have been random sort of things that shows where people are caught off guard. I can remember specifically that those shows at the gorge I was describing where we, we did, maybe it was a little obnoxious, right? We had this massive gay flag that was the size of the RV flying off of it. I can remember the night after that first show feeling exposed out in the lot there, or in the campground there. And there were definitely some comments heard in, the, in people passing by that weren't welcoming, but they're in the minority, right? I mean, those are the things that most, most bees don't sting, but you remember the one that does, right? So th- those things definitely stand out as there's been, it's, it's a spectrum, like all things. But I would say in, in the whole, yeah, the, the fish community has been very, welcoming and embracing. And I think if anything, I've seen joy in people's faces of like, oh my God, I never thought of that. When you, when you think about why people want to build a community or build on fish almost like as a platform, right? To express their identities and, and, and build out a community around it, it. It kind of goes back to those same thoughts I had of, you know, unexpectedly walking into that first show, right? It's this fluid dynamic experience where at least for me walking in there where I suddenly felt different pieces of myself manifesting manifesting at the same time. In a more fluid open freer way than i had experienced before and it's the attraction to wow i could be me in a different way than i've been me before weirdly enough at that concert it sounds weird to sort of say but that was sort of the experience that there is a a freedom and a fluidity of person in that moment that i experienced that was tantalizing and attractive and made me want to go right back i think that's this idea that it creates this this other place where maybe the it's funny, I'll, bar, I'll borrow some terminology from, you know, from the Burning Man community, which is a parallel and developed as a parallel in my life, at least. Right. So there's this concept of a temporary autonomous zone.
13: So, yeah, we were in what? Mexico and um, I think it was at, at set break and we were coming back. We, were, we had been Mike's side with another um, lesbian couple that are friends of ours. And we were coming back, and we heard these people talking about where to stand. And this one guy was like, "Let's go Mike's side," and the other guy was like, "Mike's side, dyke side." And we just overheard it on our way back to meet up with our lesbian friends. <laughs> Mike side, and we we're like, "Yeah, we we're like, why we did we
14: think of that?" <laughs> So the idea for Mike Side Dyke Side originally was talked about at set break as a really, let's do this thing. Let's do Mike Side Dyke Side, and we'll have a bunch of pride flags over by Mike Side.
2: That's Amanda Jones and Kathleen Hinkle, respectively. Kathleen is a Chicago-based photographer and fish fan that came up with the idea of Mike Side Dyke Side as an area at shows where the LGBTQ plus community could congregate and come together.
14: It'll just be a known space where people could come boogie down and find their people. And it was kind of casually represented as that. And that's maybe a dream that's still in the future, creating that space. But then when you think about it more seriously and you think about anti-trans bills that are going through state legislatures and states where Fish has shows scheduled, like Arkansas and Tennessee, you think of more more serious ways where creating a queer space at Fish
13: could have a more important reach so we were just like <laughs> you know laughing and joking about it with our friends and then
2: amanda is a graphic designer and program manager at a street paper in chicago
13: And then for Getty's birthday i made her a t-shirt that said mike side and then she made me a t-shirt we wore it to pride that year and i posted a picture i think in fish chicks and it got like a lot of attention and then we posted it uh couple other places. And yeah, it sort of was like, this is people who had a, a ton of interest and wanted a group, wanted a shirt. And so that's how it started. We just went with it. Yeah.
14: So then we were kind of rolling with it. And we have this group called Mike Side Dyke Side with t-shirts and a Facebook group and everything. So then we were like, we should probably tell Mike that we're <laughs> using his name. So his band was coming to play in Chicago at the Metro. And we made a couple Mike Side Dyke Side mugs and got some local coffee and made a Mike Side Dyke Side t shirt to give him. And so we go to the show at the Metro and we go to eat at the place next to the Metro. And of course, like the whole band is also eating there <laughs> and we have this gift bag for Mike coincidentally and we were wearing our Mike Side Dyke Side shirts and Robert Walter his piano player came up to us and complimented the shirt so we gave him the shirt and he gave Mike the Mike Side Dyke Side shirt and then on our way out of the restaurant we handed Mike the bag which had like a handwritten note explaining what we're doing with all these quotes from Mike Gordon's songs and the gift bag. So then when they came out on stage, Craig Myers, the percussionist was wearing a Mike Side Dike Side shirt. And we were like ecstatic. <laughs> and after the show, when we bought the poster and Mike does the thing where he meets everybody, he signed our poster for My Side Dykeside.
13: Side. We were totally thrilled.
1: My name is Steve Silberman, and I'm the author of Neurotribes, The Legacy of Autism and the Future of Neurodiversity, and also an old-school deadhead who wrote
2: a book back in the early 90s called Skeleton Key, a Dictionary for Deadheads. Steve is one of the preeminent voices in the Grateful Dead galaxy, and some of you may also remember him from his contributions to Wired Magazine or from seeing him at shows, including Fish... Or perhaps you heard his amazing Osiris podcast with David Crosby, Freak Flag Flying.
1: I first heard of Fish uh, probably reading the Village Voice wetlands listings. And when I saw, you know, the name Fish at the wetlands, I thought, what a dorky name. But then on October 18th, 1991... I went to see fish at the Great American Music Hall in San Francisco. The Great American Music Hall was obviously a storied venue for me because the Dead recorded one of their best shows ever there in 1975. And it turned out to be an unbelievable fish show, special for various reasons. For one thing, the kids of Ernie Styers, who was, of course, one of Trey's great compositional mentors were there. They started out with a very long jam on Runaway Jim, so I instantly knew that they could jam. They could do what, you know, Jerry Garcia described as instruments talking to each other. So, you know, there was no BS there. They were doing it. And the whole show had a sweep and a power that just completely blew my mind. And they sung Uncle Pen in the second set, so I knew that they were aware of American roots music, and that had been one of the things that drew me to the dead. They ended up doing Sweet Adeline acapella. So I felt like I was hearing sort of a history of American music funneled through the lens of these guys. And I remember thinking consciously during Gula Papyrus, oh my God, these guys are unbelievable. The next time I see them, it's probably gonna be at like Oakland Coliseum or something. And I wasn't exactly wrong. Uh, But the next time I saw them, it was a wonderful occasion. What I didn't know at that great American show was that there was a guy standing probably about, you know, 10 yards away from me who would later become my husband. But I did not meet him there. I met him online in 1994. And then we went to see a tour, really. That's how we dated. We went to see the tour in early December in 1994. So we were going to venues like Chico and uh, Spreckles Theater, particularly. UC Santa Barbara, where I nearly got busted because some security guard found some weed in my socks. The second night at Spreckles, there was some police action out front and they came out with Mackie Super policeman and Trey's walk across the stage seemed to be in beautiful defiance of the police clampdown on the fans outside. I knew they were also responding to the current conditions in the venue, which had always appealed to me about the dead. And it was just like they obviously had it. Whatever it was, and it was not the same it as the dead, it was their own it, which came out of their own musical background and you know, hearing crazy stuff like Frankenstein on the radio. They turned it all into fodder for their musical conversation, and I really respected them. I did feel right at home because there were people having the best time of their lives at an event that was completely spontaneous and improvised and would never be the same, you know, the following night. And so it was really a thrill to be back there in the moment of discovery with kindred spirits.
2: Like so many people we've heard from this season, the way that Fish reinterpreted the American songbook with a rebellious streak that reflected a sort of anti-authoritarianism, combined with obvious improvisational mind-reading superpowers, drew Steve into the Fish world. And as a deadhead, he found parallel and belonging in the burgeoning community that was springing up in that corner of the musical multiverse. Plus, Fish's orbit also had something else waiting for him. Love.
1: My husband, uh, who is Ward Q Normal on Twitter or Keith in my house, was, I would say, more into fish than the dead than I was when I met him because he's younger. He's 12 years younger. And so fish are the same age as his older brother, whose record collection he absolutely worshipped. So Keith related to fish as sort of generational peers, I had never related to the dead as generational peers. They were always older. Fish gave us a chance to get into uh, touring and a new band together, and we ended up getting married and very happily so. And we've been married for like twenty-six years now. So Fish turned out to be a new lease on jam band life for us, and uh, it's been wonderful. It
4: The most important thing to me at a fish show is that locked in moment. You know the feeling when you're dancing so hard and you're just cheesing like an idiot and you don't even care because you're so in the moment. Like, that's what I live for going to to fish shows.
2: You're not alone in that, Shaune. In this episode of Undermine, you heard from one fish, two fish, red fish, blue fish. That is to say, you heard from a number of fish fans who love and cherish going to shows as much as you do. Afterwards, they may go back to lives that are very different than anything you've ever experienced, but at doors, when everyone excitedly clears security and enters the building, they could be the person on either side of you that you just high-fived for no other reason than you've made it inside. And once inside, it, at least temporarily, becomes a place of elegance. Next week, we'll move our clock ahead by an hour for that moment every Fish fan waits for. Showtime! Oh, and also, next week's episode of Undermine is
0: Lights.
9: Uh, Nietzsche famously said that life without music would be a mistake, and he, in his writings on art, described the concept of uh, Dionysian art quite a bit, which is the overindulgent... Expansive, uh, transcendent, sometimes conflicting experience of music. And there's a lot of Dionysian experiences going on at fish shows, so I think he would like it. And uh, if I had a time machine, I would love to bring him to a concert.
2: Nietzsche at a fish show? Eh, I've seen stranger things. Just please tell him not to talk during the quiet part of Divided Sky, or at all really, and we'll get along. All right, Nietzsche, down in front. Undermine is brought to you by Osiris Media, the leading music storyteller. Executive producers are Tom Marshall, RJB, Brian Brinkman, and Matt Dwyer. Written by Benji Eisen. Produced and edited by Brian Brinkman. Mixed and mastered by Matt Dwyer. Produced by David Goldstein, Jonathan Hart, Brad Tenbrook, and Don Jenkins. Production assistance and writing by Noah Eckstein and Julia Schuster. Social media by Nick Sejas. Original music by Amar Sastry. Show art by Mark Dowd. Thank you to all our interviewees. We'll see you next week. This season of Undermine is all about the fish community. And since that's you, go ahead. Get online and judge us. Please rate and review us on your podcaster, if it's favorable, that is. Oh, and your tour buddies would love a link to this episode, so don't let them down. And while you're at it, they want your extra mail orders, too. Next week on Undermine, fish fan Ari Smith describes what happens when you've made it past security and now you're safely inside the venue with an hour to kill till showtime.
15: So you're on your way to a bar to meet an ex and they occupy an unfair amount of real estate in your soul and you are totally aware of the fact that that real estate will belong to that person forever. Uh, It's been a few months, I guess, since you've seen them last. You know it's gonna go well, but you just kinda can't shake those unknowns. Have they changed? Have you changed? Is the vibe gonna be different? Are you guys gonna kiss? Are you possibly gonna have sex? You know things are gonna go well, you just don't know what form. It's gonna take how, you know, how it's gonna look. And despite that, despite knowing that it's gonna go fantastically well and you're gonna be stoked, you're fucking draped in anxiety and paralyzed by it. Your palms are sweaty. Every conversation you're having, you are totally dialed out of. You are just numb with anxiety. And then the lights go down and that shit goes away fast. <laughs>